Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Cindy Vazquez Barrios. Cindy currently serves as the Dean of Students at Joliet Junior College in Joliet, Illinois. She has 26 years of student development experience in various positions within higher education, including admissions, educational counselor, transfer and articulation, career services, student support services, trio grant management, student life, and in student conduct administration. For the last 17 years, she's served as a student conduct officer and as an assistant dean and a dean of students responsible for student conduct and BIT team and threat assessment. She's been the Deputy Title IX Coordinator and a Student Complaint Manager. Her experience has been both in the four-year and community college environments, and currently she serves as the Head of Conduct Administration, Chair of the BIT Team, and for the last six years, the Deputy Title IX Coordinator for Investigations. Early on in her conduct career, she learned that student conduct administration at community colleges comes with special challenges all their own, and a cookie-cutter approach to conduct administration would not be successful with the special populations at her community college, so she began to take on the responsibility for developing and tailoring student conduct best practices to fit the needs of her community. She specializes in the large community college environments that serve over 18,000 students, but can also address the challenges of working in a small one-person conduct office. Cindy earned a Master's of Education with a concentration in higher ed administration and a minor in student personnel and counseling, a certificate from the Management Development Program at Harvard, and a certificate in nonprofit management from Roosevelt University, and a Bachelor of Arts from Columbia College in Chicago. As a member of ASCA, Cindy has been actively involved for 12 years. She served as a member of the Board of Directors, as the Director for Community Colleges, and she's been on faculty at Gehring Academy in 2012, 2013, and 2017. She's attended two Gehring Academies herself and 11 conferences. She served as the Community College Liaison for Circuit 7 for four years and the Chair of the Community College Member Interest Council for two years, a member of the Diversity Strategic Planning Team, and a member of the Diversity Committee, and finally also as a member of of the LDC. So our conversation with Cindy is going to focus on community colleges and student conduct. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, Cindy Vasquez Barrios. Cindy comes to us as the Dean of Students from Joliet Junior College, which is just outside of Chicago. And Cindy is also a former board member for ASCA. She served as the director for community colleges. Welcome, Cindy. Thank you, Joe. So glad to be talking with you today. I think you bring an extraordinarily valuable perspective about community colleges. Uh, If I recall recall correctly, you were the second person ever to hold that role. Is that right? That is correct. And what do you kind of see and espouse as far as representing and kind of bringing forward and advocating for the needs of community colleges in the student conduct profession? Well, the community college is a unique animal all in itself because many of the individuals that play a role in student conduct in community colleges wear multiple hats. Um, I know I've been familiar with, uh, I was at a four-year private institution where, you know, that particular role was very specific. And currently in in my role, and I've been in this role in three different community colleges, um, 
what I've seen happen is that, you know, I am the dean of students, but I also over student rights, um, you know, over student life, health services. I have very many roles, which kind of stretches an individual compared to somebody who can solely concentrate on student conduct. So, Cindy, you mentioned three separate community colleges. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your pathway and your journey into student affairs, student conduct, and eventually into the boardroom? Okay, well, I've been in higher ed for 27 years as of October 1st of this year. Happy work anniversary. Um, but I, oh, thank you. <laughs> and um, when I first started really in the student conduct role, I was at a large city, uh, city college. So one of the unique challenges coming into that in student conduct is that it was a district-wide. There were seven colleges that reported into a district, and we all had a code that was developed at the district level. So that that sounds like a lot of stakeholders. Yes, there was a lot of stakeholders. Things could not be changed. Um, For the longest time, even when I became my role here at JJC, they still had the same code of conduct (laughs) that they had when I was originally at that first institution, probably 10 years previously. You know, coming into that, that was really my new role coming in um, as the assistant dean of uh, student services. So I actually had all student services underneath me, including I was gifted uh, student conduct because the dean at that time did not appreciate doing student conduct. So that's kind of how I got into the field. I was gifted it as a, as I took on a new role at that institution. And it sounds like the code was at least 10 years old at the time? Actually, it was probably more like 20 years old uh, when I took it over. It was, it was not student-centered. It was very discipline-oriented, uh, very conflict-generating, uh, really no formal process procedures in place, um, no training. It was really starting from scratch, and that's how I eventually made my way to ASCA. Because I needed some significant help. When did you find ASCA, or was it ASJA then? It was ASJA probably, I would say, 1998, something like that. All right. So you're a nearly 20-year veteran with the association. Yes, I've been around quite a while. I wasn't very active, I'd say. I became very active probably in the last... 13 to 15 years, I kind of was on the sideline and just kind of used some of the resources that I was able to get publicly, stuff like that, but then became very involved uh, probably about 13 years ago. What was your pathway to involvement? How's that evolved? Uh, When I moved to my next institution, I worked for another community college, which, which was more a suburban institution, but highly regarded. It was a vanguard institution, a League of Innovation school, um, great institution to work for, and their previous assistant uh, dean of judicial affairs um, and student life was a member of ASCA and kind of got me really more involved and pulled into the, to the association. And then I attended the Gearing Academy, uh, which was really my first real experience with ASCA. That seems to be a pathway in for a lot of folks uh, as they're exposed to the Academy first and then the conference second. Sounds like that was true yep. for you. That was very true for me. 
So what leadership you got roles? Got to meet have... a lot of great people. Oh, definitely, and and some folks that I think you're still attached to today. Is that right? Oh, definitely. I for, you know, forged some real friendships and then mentorships at the academy. So I kind of stayed in contact, and those were the ones who really brought me into the association and continued to uh, voluntold me for things. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, I started volunteering myself, and then I, you know, I had to slap my hand because I kept volunteering for everything. What so were some I of those to- roles you had? Uh, well, originally, I think my first real involvement was at the state level, uh, since there wasn't really anybody coordinating the community colleges at the state level. Uh, I became actively involved. They kind of considered me the state rep, and then I started doing it for, at that time, we had the circuits, so I was a circuit seven community college rep, and I was organizing all the activities and education for the community colleges for our tri-state area of Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. And then I would participate and try to do workshops and things through our state association or circuit, I'm sorry, our circuit association. So I did that for probably at least four years, five years. It's the uh, the other tri-state. As a New Yorker, we would definitely not think of that as the tri-state area. <laughs> Well, you know, a lot of us touch in the, it's pretty around Lake Michigan. There's a lot of uh, cities. So a lot of us had communications otherwise, but this really brought us together. Excellent. You were, you were coordinating the circuit and then eventually you evolved into a board member and then a Gearing Academy faculty member. So how has that happened? Oh, well, let's see. Uh, I I did start taking national positions, like chair roles. At that time, it was the member interest councils, communities. I was a community college MIC uh, for about three or four years. Um, And then I started presenting at ASCA uh, a lot on the community college aspect because when I went there to all the the conferences, they were really geared toward four-year institutions, and at that time, it was really four-year public. And so for for me, it really didn't resonate with me. And so myself and some other community college people that I was able to meet started talking, and we started collaborating on sessions at the AAC conference. And then from there, it kind of developed into bringing us into the Gearing Academy for I think I did it for two or three years. I did a community college focus uh, for um, Gearing. And then this year I've been asked to kind of move into the introductory track. And you're going just to be in general. working with foundations this year, right? Yes, I am working with the Mary Beth Mackin Foundations track this year. Excellent. And how are you infusing community college needs and lens and kind of practitioner-based uh, information into the academy curriculum? Actually, right now I'm having the the challenge because I'm developing the curriculum right now and working on my presentation. And so my experience has always, you know, not always, but most of my experience has been at the community college. So I'm trying to actually try to infuse the four-year and the private, (laughs) the private and the public model into my presentation. So I'm kind of taking it the other way. But I am going to make sure that when I give examples, uh, when I show some videos, and also when I do some of the activities, I'm going to take it from all different lenses and give the opportunity uh, case studies for individuals to choose which one they would like to work on. 
so that I'm trying to meet all of the needs of everybody that's participating. But, you know, my love is for community colleges, so there will definitely be all of those included in my presentation. Definitely. I think one of the, the biggest challenges of being a faculty member at Academy is that there are so many different lenses at the table uh, in terms of who's learning with us. And, you know, oh, yeah, those different constituents. Different constituents. And, you know, I, I was recently at another conference where I was asked to do a session on kind of the basics of student conduct. And it took me a moment to step back and say, wait, I'm trying to do a vocabulary list here. And I don't remember what terms are necessarily specific to student conduct versus student affairs. That took me a minute. So I think kind yes. of, as, mm-hmm. as you think about this community college lens, kind of hard to remember what you didn't know at the time. That's right. Definitely. I mean, it was, you know, community college, at least from all the institutions that I really came through, I really had to develop all of them. You know, when I came into each one of the institutions, they um, they were at a, a low level of a functioning, low level of more looking at it from a disciplinary point of view opposed to an educational. Mm-hmm. And so I really had to work on developing uh, a whole new set of mission and vision for each of the areas, including in my training. You know, when I do that, I have to kind of keep, especially in the foundations track, you know, I have to remember where I was back then. You know, many of these individuals coming in, I still uh, may be at a lower level institution. So I have to keep that in mind as I move forward. Certainly. And as you kind of look forward, where do you think your journey is going to take you next? You know, I don't know. I think I'm kind of at a loss right now where I'm going, uh, both professionally, what's my next, what are my next steps, um, and as I look forward to retirement, you know, sometime soon within the next 10 years. So I don't know. I'm actually uh, researching that right now, trying to figure out, doing some introspective looks at myself and my career and where I want to go next, both um you know, within my uh, job, per se, and as well as my external associations as well. Sure. And as you kind of reflect on, on the past, what advice would you give to folks who are trying to follow in your footsteps? Be passionate uh, about what you do. Be informed about, about it. Uh, make sure that you focus on uh, student advocacy and student learning as well as the thing that I'm actually working on in my presentation is recognizing and understanding institutional culture and climate and building relationships because I've learned in my journey that you are not going to be successful uh, being naive to your institutional's culture and climate and not for, uh, forging the right relationships and nurturing those relationships in order for your area to be successful. How did you go about finding those and kind of putting your finger on the pulse of where to, where to identify which relationships to spend the most time nurturing? Well, I think once you kind of move into a new institution, you really have to take the time out. Don't be quick. I would say, you know, there's, a, there's that book, uh, You're in Charge Now and What to Do. It's a great resource. It's by uh, Thomas Neff. Um, it's kind of an eight-point plan, uh, which I kind of used when I moved in each time into a new institution. There's several books, but I kind of use that and take that time, that 90 days to assess. Um, and one of the books I also read for that, which is really good, it's 
Then I'm also using my presentations. It's an old book. It's called Leadership and it's or Strategies for Organizational Effectiveness by James Cribben, which um, I found very, very useful in um, kind of assessing, evaluating your institutional um, organization and looking at uh, what insight and what support your department has, uh, what relationships your department has. Also within your division, what kind of relationships do you have, which ones are important and critical uh, to your success within your division. And then, you know, looking a little farther out um, and what is your relationship with academic affairs or other areas of within the institution that you need in order to be successful. And then looking at your external, some of the external pressures um, that can make or break your, your department as well as your institution. Certainly. So, uh, Cindy, you mentioned something earlier that I want to revisit, which is focusing on advocacy for students. Um, and mm-hmm. that is such a, a lovely tie-in to the core values of the student conduct profession. And, you know, our, the ethical core values that ASCA ascribes to our advocacy, community, diversity and inclusion, education, integrity, and leadership. As you think about advocacy for students and these other five core values, how do you find yourself living through them or with them or keeping them in mind as you do your day-to-day work? Well, I think one of the things, especially here at the institution that I'm at, uh, I've really incorporated advocacy for our students. Again, when we, when I first arrived, it was a more disciplined focused system. One of the things I found is that we had a high referral rate from our faculty, uh, from our police department. Um, one of the things that one of the challenges when I got here is that we had a high referral rate for our students of color. And um, I felt like sometimes I think some of that was misdirected, misguided. Um, we had to do a lot of education and advocacy for our students as a whole about what is appropriate referrals for students um, and that, you know, understanding the impact that a referring a student has to that student's future, uh, both especially at a community college when we're looking at those students who want to transfer to a four-year institution and four-year institutions are asking for an evaluation as a part of their application. Do they have any past disciplinary records and things like that? So doing that and also understanding that individuals that may be referring students may have some role and responsibility in the reactions of students. And so kind of pushing back and educating the faculty about classroom management and, you know, the role that plays and what responsibility they have in controlling the classroom before sending it to a code issue. I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have in the field as conduct officers is, uh, you know, we want all those calls. We want the referrals so we can work with our students. But at the same time, we, we don't necessarily want to be addressing things like the student in the classroom just won't put their cell phone away. Or, you know, you know, won't raise their hand or things like that. So, you know, in this delicate balance of what is classroom management and what is a policy violation or a code violation, how do you work with your faculty? 
one of the things I've done um, is I've offered workshops. We have something called PP&D Week, uh, which is usually at the, the week before students return. Faculty do return, and I offer a lot of sessions. But I've been able to build relationships with uh, the a- academic side, so all new faculty that come in, I get the opportunity to give them an orientation to all the different areas that I that I do. But I also uh, let them know that I offer workshops in uh, FERPA because we have a lot of issues uh, in FERPA, especially that kind of arise through the conduct uh, issues. And when when faculty can't manage a student, they start saying things that are FERPA violations, so I do mm-hmm. FERPA workshops, classroom management uh, workshops for those individuals that feel that they need it, or if they now I have a relationship with our HR department as well as our registrar, and if there are violations to FERPA, uh, they're mandated to do a workshop with me. I've kind of linked in that way. I also uh, do, for all our adjunct hires, um, I go through their orientation, I'm a part of their orientation. So I've been able to accomplish uh, that as well. And then I also do just general workshops uh, during our PP&D days. Uh, We have one in the fall, one in the spring, and then I do several offerings uh, during those orientation weeks, both in the spring and the fall. And they're very well attended. I think me and the listeners are probably all very curious. What does PP&D stand for? Uh, Personal and Professional Development Week. It's time for the Public Policy and Legislative Issues Committee update. Hello again from the PPLI. Today we'd like to tackle a topic area that is not necessarily specific to student disciplinary concerns, but it does address an important trend happening in community colleges across the country, and that is the emerging presence of free tuition. Everybody loves free tuition. This idea grew national attention in 2015 under President Barack Obama when he first proposed the idea to a crowded Pellissippi State Community College in Knoxville, Tennessee. The location announcement was important because Tennessee was the first state to offer such a program called the Tennessee Promise, which covered community college tuition that was not covered by grants and scholarships so long as students performed eight hours of community service per term, maintained a 2.0 GPA, and had an ongoing relationship with a professional mentor. Last month, a study on the students in the Tennessee Promise program showed that recipients are statistically more likely to succeed than their peers, showing a 56% graduation transfer retention rate higher than the 39% for students outside of the program. The data did show some concerns about equity gaps, noting that minority students were less likely than Caucasian students to fully participate in the Tennessee Promise program. But overall, the program has shown to increase student success. In the 2016 presidential election, the issue again gained national attention when the idea of free community college tuition was endorsed by both Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. One of the biggest hurdles against the plans includes the price tag. Even though students still have to pay for things like room and board, technology fees, and school supplies, the cost to states to grant tuition scholarships is high. Some states have proposed passing that cost off to taxpayers, while others, like Tennessee, can fund the program completed through their state lottery. But for states like Oregon and Tennessee, each with an estimated price tag of around 10 to 12 million per year, funding looks very different than a state like New York, who started the program this year with an estimated cost of 163 million per year. 
In cities like San Francisco, that city is increasing a real estate transfer tax on luxury properties to help foot the $5.4 million bill, while states like Minnesota, South Dakota, and Arkansas are helping curtail costs by limiting similar programs to students who are studying in, quote, high-demand fields of study like computer science or welding. Proponents of the plan were concerned that with the election of President Trump, the free tuition movement would go away, but that hasn't been the case. Despite the endorsement of President Obama, as well as candidates Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, the idea has always been one generated on the state city level for community colleges. Both red and blue states have either adopted plans or are currently in the midst of their own proposals, indicating that the idea does not fall on partisan lines, but rather emerges from cities and states that view an investment in students will eventually pay dividends, as it has dating back to the GI Bill. These programs are anything but free rides with behavioral stipulations and academic standards, but they can likely be a path toward success for many students who see none, assuming their local government can find a way to foot the bill. If you live in one of the communities considering free tuition for community college students, the PPLI committee can help you better understand ways to track legislation, write to your representatives, and otherwise engage in the lawmaking process. That's it for now, and thanks for listening. Thank you so much, PPLI. And now back to our conversation. Cindy, we were talking a little bit about PP&D, which is your professional development days. And you were mentioning kind of how you'd integrated a lot of your portfolio into HR, into working with faculty and things like that. You know, I I should have asked you this when I was uh, introducing you, but what all is in your Dean of Students portfolio? Okay, let's see. Well, I have student, uh, course student conduct. Uh, We do also do the academic honor code. I am also the deputy Title IX coordinator, and I take on a big role of responsibility with really leading the college in that area, uh, as well as training for students, training for faculty and staff, uh, develop of all the curriculum, I also oversee, I'm the chair of the behavioral intervention team. I oversee student activities, um, organizations and clubs, uh, holistic wellness, uh, student health insurance, our photo ID services, and everything that comes with that. Um, I think that's it. You say that's it as if there's not much in your portfolio. That's enormous. No, no, not, not at all, you know. Not at all. You know, I just sit back and put my feet up and eat bonbons and drink cappuccinos all day. (laughs) Uh, Well, Cindy, I wanted to ask you, too. um, Many of our listeners may know you as one of the leaders of the Women of Color Summit group that was an outcropping of the African-American Black Male Summit. It is one of the, the two kind of informal groups that we have in the association to help us recognize racial diversity in the profession. Can you talk about kind of how you got to that table and what that has meant to you and and what you're trying to do with up-and-coming women of color? I know exactly how that happened. Um, When I I came to JJC, as I had said earlier, we had a real disparity in the referral rates of our African-American male students. Uh, And I was really concerned, and the community was concerned about that. That was one of the biggest things when I was 
um, kind of going around to different constituency groups, and they did it quite angrily and quite loudly about how they felt that the, the system may have been biased. Um, and I, I needed some resources. And so I st- asked if I could start joining some of the meetings for the African American Male Summit when I got there uh, to the ASCA conference. And luckily for me, I was welcomed in to have some of those conversations that needed to be happening and what were the concerns of the African American male population and some of my fellow conduct officers and what they were seeing on their campuses. And that really helped me come back to my institution and start incorporating some some new ideas, new things, some new processes, procedures that would assist with that. And because I had that passion and they realized that, I kind of got brought in to the African-American female uh, group as well. Some of the things that, the conversations that we got going there and so I guess it just kind of naturally flowed, flowed um, because we are now also a Hispanic-serving population here. We have 25% uh, Hispanic uh, population at my institution. Um, that's also one of our, you know, for me, one of my key passions as well. And so I think it just kind of naturally flowed into um, our women of color um, affiliation. And with the Women of Color Affiliation, I know you're one of the original kind of founding members. What was the goal of the original core um, as it became established? Um, I think it was a support group. I believe originally it was really a support group for our women of color, especially being at institutions where we are the minority and not the majority. And what were some of those challenges being a minority but also being a woman? Uh, a minority woman on the college campuses. So I think it was really for us to get together and um, push each other up, hold each other up, share uh, some of the challenges and uh, that we were facing at our institutions and what could we do and what advice can we give each other. I think it also then kind of grew into supporting moving forward through for our doctoral degrees or JDs or terminal degrees and how we uh, went through that process and, you know, how do you support, how do you navigate an institution that would support your own personal development but also um, nurturing your own growth within the institution. And what did you see some of those original challenges being um, in terms of what maybe unique support would a, a woman of color need in the student conduct profession compared to maybe um, someone who wears more of a phenotypically majority identity? Um, I think um, it would really focus on depending on the institution that you are uh, working with, um, depending on, I know there are many more women in in positions of power or uh, higher uh, levels of leadership, um, but very few that were of color. And so really having, sometimes you need to get your mentorship outside of your organization or looking for a mentor at a similar like institution that could help you um, understand the governance process, um, especially if you're um, higher education 
schooling, I would say, was not in higher educational leadership. So really understanding governance structures, understanding institutional culture, and um, how to navigate that. And I think really having somebody who is in that similar position, who has gone through that process, can assist you with looking at things from a different lens that you may not necessarily get from someone uh, who is of majority or that that connection may not exist for you uh, on your campus. Finding that that balance, finding somebody who can support and push you up or somebody that you can just call and say, you know, with confidence that it wouldn't be shared that, hey, I'm having some of these challenges at my institution, not only structurally, but I think maybe culturally, and how can you maybe help me navigate that? Are you participating in any mentorship now? Uh, Me personally, not at this particular time. Would you be open to having other women of color contacting you or any other listener for that matter who'd be interested in your perspective? Oh, yes. I've done it uh, for, for lots of years. I just don't have anybody actively right now. So, Cindy, how would folks get a hold of you if they want to reach out? Oh, well, you can email me at JJC. So that would be C-Y-V-A-S-Q-U-E at JJC.edu. I do have Twitter, but I'm not very active on it. I believe my Twitter is, um, what is my Twitter? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's Cindy Luhu 23. That sounds about right. I think I've tweeted you at Cindy Luhu 23 before. Well, listeners, if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter at ASCA podcast, or you can email us at ASCA podcast at gmail.com. Cindy, I wanted to thank you so much for sharing your viewpoint with us today. Do you have any final stray thoughts or observations? I'm always open to anybody who wants to talk or chat um, you know, offline. Um, I'm always willing if anybody who really knows me knows that I always share everything. My knowledge, my resources, sometimes my presentations, if you need help and support at your institution, I'm always um, available. Excellent. I give my stuff willingly and freely. Excellent. And if you are attending the Gehring Academy, look for Cindy's influence there. Thank you so much again, Cindy. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Jill. I really appreciate it. Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we have a very special episode. We will be presenting an interview recorded with Mary Beth Mackin back in 2015. Mary Beth Mackin was a past president of ASCA and she passed away on November 7th, 2015. We look forward to presenting this conversation with Mary Beth and we do have permission from her surviving partner to release the audio. So we hope you'll come back and join us and learn about the legacy of Mary Beth as well as all that she had to offer the field. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCA Podcast at gmail.com.